You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome. You're listening to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. This is a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. Now, my name is Doug Dahlgren. I'm going to be your host for this next hour. I'm an author myself. You can hopefully find my work on Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, and, of course, you can go to my website, DougDahlgren.com, and I want you to do that when this program's over uh, and right after you've ordered our guest book. Now, we call this show the prologue because that's what it is. It's an introduction. And while we introduce the ones that we introduce are mainly writers, we also love to bring you people from other fields and other endeavors as well, folks with just a good story that they need to tell. So I want to hear from you. Now, let me ask you something. Do you have a pen or a pencil that's handy? Do you have something to write on? Wouldn't hurt to have that nearby because, you see, throughout this program, there's going to be information that we're going to give out that you might want to make a note of, like this, for instance. If you or that someone you know has a book or that interesting story that just needs to be told, I want you to reach out to me through email. I'm going to give you two email addresses. Here's how you can reach me. Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com, all together. Or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. Use those email addresses to send me information about yourself, your work, or your friend, how to reach them, to talk to them. And also, I'd like to hear from you folks out there in the listening audience. Just let us know what you think about the show. We always like to hear from you, anything we can do better, anything we you know couldn't possibly do worse, you know, whatever comments that you might have. We'd love to speak to you uh, about your friend or anything that you have to say. So email me today, all right? Now, our guest today is a very prolific writer. He has over 40 plays to date. 34 of those are published, and he has four novels, including the newest work, a novel based on one of his longstanding plays, The Bluebird Prince. He's won many awards and been nominated for scores of others. He is a distinguished resident playwright emeritus at Chicago Dramaticists. He's a member of the Dramaticist Guild and a member of the Atlanta Writers Club. Evan Guilford Blake is with us this hour, and before I bring him on, I hope he and you will allow me to recognize two very important groups of listeners that we're proud to have for this program. First, our brave men and women in the armed forces stationed around the world. They're working hard and putting all of it on the line every day for us, keeping us safe back home. I don't want to date the show, but we lost two uh, recently, and uh, it, it's difficult here the way we live to think about what they're going through on a daily basis, and they do that for us people. Freedom's not free. It's bought and paid for by those brave troops, and we thank them for their service and sacrifice, and we thank them for being listeners. Also, we don't want to forget those first responders who are here at home, the police, fire, and rescue personnel. And again, sadly, we lost two police officers recently. Uh, The total is staggering in this country. That should not be happening. But we want to remember them and, and thank them for what they do. They come to our aid when we need their help, and they don't know who you are, folks. They rush in anyway. So we honor them and we thank them for all that they do and thank them also being listeners to the station and the show. With respectful homage to the Cheshire Cat, 
to Puck. The Creatures of Oz, Santa's Reindeer, and many other beloved fairy tale inhabitants. The Bluebird Prince is a love story and, and a story of love and treachery on the road to happily ever after. Prince Charming and Princess Fiordis. <clears throat> hey there, Evan, help me with that name. Fiordalisa. Fiordalisa. Princess, Char- Princess Fiordalisa are tricked by the wicked queen and her equally wicked daughter in this retelling of an old French fairy tale. Now, both the successful play and the new novel of the same name are written by our guest, Evan Guilford Blake. And Evan is with us this hour, as you already know. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thank you very much, Doug, and thank you for having me uh, on the show. Well, it's delightful to have you with us. We, we, I don't know that we've actually had a playwright before, and, and this is exciting for me. Uh, let me ask you something. Do you recall when you first learned about the French tale that this story is based on? Oh, yeah, that was many, 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 many years ago. Um, it's a long story, and to give it to you, just a, a quick capsule, uh, I used to be a storyteller, and I had a storytelling company with a partner with whom I worked in tandem. And she's the one who found it, showed it to me, I loved it, and I ended up adapting it into various forms. It's it's an amazing story, and you use it basically as a platform, a starting point for your story, because you work in quite a number of familiar characters that we all grew up with. Isn't that right? Yes, indeed. The, um, the story itself... Uh, actually is very brief, maybe 15, 18 pages. Uh, it was written by uh, a, a French fairy tale writer whose name I frankly can't pronounce, uh, and it was anthologized by Andrew Lang, who published 14 collections of fairy tales, the Blue Fairy Tale Book, the Green Fairy Tale Book, the Lavender Fairy Tale Book, um, and li- that contained literally hundreds of stories. Uh, my partner Melody found it. She showed it to me. I read it and loved it, and I adapted it into a, uh, a storytelling vehicle. From that, it was for three people, uh, and our, our company, which was called Stories and Stuff, was uh, uh, very popular. We were in Chicago, and we did very well uh, in the early 80s. And then the bottom fell out of the funding market. We'd showed the story to the Chicago Symphony Youth Orchestra with the idea of adapting it into a multiple storyteller vehicle a la Peter and the Wolf, uh, with original music being composed for it. The, uh, they loved the idea, and they set about looking for funding for it, and then, as I said, the bottom dropped out of the funding market, and so it just sat there for many years. And then about, uh, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years later, I adapted it into a play, um, a musical, in fact, but I couldn't find anyone to write the music for it. So I let it sit, and then again, about 15 years later, um, I went back to it and decided to turn it into a conventional play without music, um, which I did, and sent it to a theater in Arizona called the uh, East Valley Children's Theater for their competition, um, and they won. it won. They selected it for production. Uh, the, the head of that theater, his name is Karen Rolston, was very enthusiastic about it. She loved it. They did a great production. My wife and I went down there to, to see it and just fell in love with her and with the theater and with what they did. And they work exclusively with children. 
everyone in their company is between the ages of 5 and 18. Um, came back to um, uh, Atlanta and decided to send it to a publishing house to see if they were interested. And Pioneer Drama Service, which is a large publisher of plays, particularly children's work, uh, agreed to publish it, which they did uh, about three years ago. It has done really very well. It's being produced by a major theater company in Connecticut uh, next month. Um, Lori Connery, who's the head of acquisitions there, uh, liked it so much that I said, well, you know, what about turning this into a novel? And she said, I think it's a great idea. So I did. I converted the play into a novel form, sent it to a publishing house called Rooster and Egg Publishing, which is a small house based in Florida. They loved it and said, sure, of course we'll publish it. <laughs> I couldn't have been happier. So they finally did in April of, uh, of this year. It's out in uh, a trade paper edition, which is available on Amazon and at uh, a couple of bookstores. And uh, they, uh, they and the play, it and the play, the novel and the play, are both doing pretty well. So I'm, I'm very happy, but it was a long journey between the time that the, I first found the story and the time that uh, it actually ended up getting published in book form, close to 30 years. We're both in the Atlanta area here. Uh, we Our show goes worldwide, of course, but uh, for local listeners, is there anywhere uh, recent that the play has been produced? Not, re- not locally. Um, it's been produced in Arizona, and it's going to be produced in Connecticut. And let me take a look here and see if I can find where, where else it's been produced. I know that information. Um, but I just don't have it at the tip of my fingers. Well, we'll we'll move uh, along. We'll move along with some other things here, and you can kind of look for that. But you know, the listeners are going to want to know where they can see this because this is an interesting story for sure. Uh, another thing that the listeners are very interested in is the people who do this work, the people who write. Now, I understand you're an only child of parents <laughs> who were both writers. Now, that's not the norm. We don't usually have that. So, I guess we can set aside the boilerplate question about your motivation to become a writer, can't we? <laughs> Absolutely. I, my, I started writing when I was five. I wrote a, uh, uh, a short poem. My mother liked it, and she didn't tell me, but she sent it to a, a children's magazine. Uh, and they liked it. They bought it. They paid me $5. Um, this was a long time ago when $5 really meant something. Oh, yeah. um, and I was hooked, so I've been writing ever since. Well, now tell us a little more about your parents. Well, um, my dad was a teacher. He taught English and math, among other things. And my mother was a writer. She, uh, uh, my dad also wrote, but he wrote journalism. Um, my mom wrote creatively for two and a half years. She worked for a small radio station in southern Illinois where she turned out two or three children's radio plays every single week for two and a half years. Um, they were 22 to 26 minutes. And, of course, both of them were very enthusiastic uh, to get me to read, not so much to write, but definitely to read. And so uh, they bought me any and every book I wanted. <laughs> and uh, I read and read and read, and my mother encouraged my writing, and my dad encouraged my writing. And so by the time I was, actually when I was 12, I wrote my first play. It was truly terrible. <clears throat> but it was great fun, and I've been writing pretty much ever since. Well, now, the the reading, what age do you recall you first became interested in reading? 
Oh, my parents read to me from the time I was uh, able to listen. I think I was probably a year old, and they taught me to read on my own when I was three, uh, basically because I used to bother them so much uh, to read to me that they didn't have time to read themselves. So my mom taught me how to read. I have a story about that. Um, it, it's called My uh, My Enemy, Dr. Seuss. that was published uh, last year <clears throat> because... Uh, uh, I, I grew up thinking Dr. Seuss didn't like dads because he has a story called Hop on Pop, and I always took that very personally. <clears throat> but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I started reading when I was three, and by the time I was six or seven, I was reading a book a day, sometimes two books in a day, uh, because I just I just loved to do it. Well, as you grew older, did you find yourself enjoying a particular genre more than the next not really. I mean, when I was a kid, I read um, a lot of kids' books. Uh, I guess my favorite author when I was very young was A.A. A. Milne. I loved all the Pooh books, and especially the books of poetry. But uh, I grew up with very diverse tastes. Uh, I read lots of poetry because my mother loved it. I read lots of uh, uh, children's fiction, and I read lots of adult fiction, too. I mean, I, I, pardon me, I started reading Mark Twain and Charles Dickens before I was 10, um, and enjoy both of them and continue to read them all the way through my adulthood. I still read Dickens all the time. So I, I guess you could say that I read mostly fiction uh, and poetry, but uh, I also read plays even then because my mother was a playwright, and I made my debut as an actor when I was 10 in one of her uh, plays that was written for the stage. How about today? What, what do you enjoy reading today? <laughs> you can pretty much name it. I, most of my reading today, unfortunately, is for research because uh, I have to read a lot of books for the things that I'm uh, investigating uh, to write about. But uh, I also I read a lot of contemporary fiction. I still read a lot of poetry. Um, I read the occasional work of nonfiction. And, of course, I read plays. Um, right. Very good. Folks, we're here this morning with playwright and author, Evan Guilford Blake, he's talking about his early days and how he came to write The Bluebird Prince. And we're going to be back with more from Evan after these short messages. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors. And should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com. And enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? 
All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is americaswebradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back. This morning we're here with Evan Guilford Blake. He's a playwright and a novelist. And we often do not have that combination here with us because it's two very different types of writing. And a little later we're going to get Evan to explain that to us. Uh, Evan, you've written one of your stories in both forms. But when, what age, and, and exactly when did you begin to know you could be a writer? Well, I think I really knew I could become a writer uh, in the late 1980s. I mean, I'd, I'd always dabbled in writing. I'd, I wrote a novel in the uh, early 70s, which was truly awful. <clears throat> and then I wrote another novel, uh, I don't even remember, I guess in the late 70s, which was also pretty terrible. Uh, neither is published, and neither is ever going to be published. And I have anything to say about it. But I wrote my first play in 1980, uh, wasn't very happy with it and sort of set it aside and went back to writing plays because that was the medium in which I was most familiar um, in the late 1980s. And that's when I took it, started to take it really seriously. Um, I wrote my first, what I'd consider mature play in 1989 or 1990. Um, it, uh, it was okay. It was, it was pretty good. It wasn't great, but it was pretty good. And then I wrote a short one act, which uh, was uh, I entered into a contest where it was the runner-up, and they decided to produce it, and that was very encouraging because it was only my reading, my second play. And then in 1991, I had two plays that I had finished recently, and both were produced as world premieres by theaters uh, in the Chicago area where I was living at the time. Um, one got lukewarm reception, but the other one won a bunch of awards, uh, and it got me going. Uh, you know, it, it obviously made me very enthusiastic. And from that point on, I wrote almost nothing but plays for the next 15 years, um, during which time I entered a lot of competitions, was fortunate enough to win a number of them, and had work that was produced all over the world. Um, and... Um, Ended up actually having my first play published, I think, in 2006. Uh, I was affiliated then with Chicago Drama, which is, I've always found, the best single place for play development in the world. Um, I've worked with other ones, and that, that they're definitely terrific. Um, and they helped me a lot, both to uh, develop myself as a playwright and to showcase my plays. Uh, developing a play is, is a lot different than writing a novel because it's a highly collaborative process and it takes a fairly long time to do and you need, you need input from people who know what playwriting is about and uh, who can guide you toward learning what you're doing. Um, but go ahead. You mentioned, you mentioned your first uh, play was produced in 2006. Uh, what was the title of that one? No, it was first published in 2006. So my first play was produced actually in 1990 or 1991. Okay. But the play that was first published in 2006 is called Ceremonies of Prayer. And it's a drama that's loosely suggested by incidents in the life of Vincent van Gogh. Um, it won uh, several awards. And the big one was the, uh, the Utah Playwriting Competition 
It was produced in Utah at Utah State University in 1996. Uh, and it's also been produced in San Francisco and in Chicago and uh, somewhere else. I've forgotten where that was. Now, you've won many awards along the trail here. Was that the first, or do you recall what your first piece to be recognized actually was? Um, the first award I won was for the one act that I wrote in uh, uh, 1990 or thereabouts. Uh, the first significant award that I won was, I think, the Utah State uh, Playwriting Competition. Uh, and then after that, I won several others in, in short order uh, uh, from various theaters across the country. I let's see. Um, the um, biggest award I've won probably was the Utah State, but I've also won the uh, the Eamon Keane Award from uh, uh, an Irish organization. That's the most prestigious award that Ireland gives for uh, for playwriting, and. Um, uh, it uh, that was in 2009 for a play of mine called uh, An Uncommon Language that uh, hasn't been produced. Okay. <laughs> but, how do you have a number? How many how many plays have you written? Uh, roughly 45. Um, it's it's hard to tell for sure, um, but roughly 45. And of those, you say uh, how many have been actually produced on stage? Uh, about 40 have been produced on stage, wow. maybe 42, 43. Um, I only have a handful of plays that have not been produced, um, and 34 have been published. So uh, now, tell uh, I've us been the very lucky. How, a play being published as opposed to being actually a production, what, what does that mean? Um, did it's out there available? Yes. Um, when a play is produced, the theater takes the script and hires actors and mounts it on stage, and audiences buy tickets to come see it. Um, that can be with a published script or an unpublished script. Um, an unpublished script is one that no publishing company has put into either binding form or online and made available to theaters to investigate. Um, I have uh, about 15 scripts that are published in what are called acting editions. If uh, your readers ever, you know, buy plays or read plays, they will see that most of them are in editions published by an outfit like Samuel French or Pioneer Drama Service or Dramatist Play Service. And they're small, uh, usually five-by-eight paper-bound editions that they can buy from the publisher either through the website or uh, sometimes in places like Drama Bookshop in New York, which uh, sells thousands of plays. Um, and then they... they they pay for the script, which usually runs anywhere from 5 to $15, and then they request production rights from the publisher. Or if the script is unpublished, they request it from the playwright. Um, and they pay a royalty for each performance, usually, um, that they present to their audiences. Um, a lot of my scripts and a lot of most playwright scripts that are published today are not published in acting editions. They're published online, and there are a number of very good online publishers who make the script available for review and download to potential play buyers. Uh, one of those that I deal with a lot is called Off the Wall. Uh, they're based in South Africa and in London, and yet they publish my plays and many other American writers' plays. Um, 
another one that that's uh, an online publisher that's uh, <clears throat> reasonably well known is called Blue Moon Plays, uh, and then there are the the conventional houses. Uh, as I said, there's a wonderful house called Youth Plays, which specializes in children's shows that publishes four or five of my plays and a lot of others. Um, so you know, if if you're you're Listeners are interested in writing plays and looking for publishers for them. They can find lots of places online that uh, are potential opportunities. Now, The Bluebird Prince is your latest novel, and again, it's based a story that's based on a play that uh, you had previously published. But you also have another story that's out since The Bluebird Prince. Where can folks uh, find out more about all of your work, and uh, what exactly is this newest production that you've got? Well, the, the newest piece that's been published is a short story called A Chattering of Chickadees. Um, and it's a, a very nice story about a man, an older man and an older woman, his affection for birds and her affection for creating things from polymer clay, which I might note my wife is a polymer clay artist and she's the one from whom I got the idea. Um, it's in a publication called the Bacopa... Uh, B-A-C-O-P-A journal. Um, they publish a volume every year, and this year they chose to include A Chattering of Chickadees. Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's $10, um, and I just got my copy in the mail a couple of days ago. It's a beautifully executed book that has some wonderful stories that are I've only read a couple so far, but I'm looking forward to reading, reading the rest. And all of my work, I mean, I have 26 different titles, that are available on Amazon. And the easiest way to find them is to go to Amazon.com and type in my name in the search box. It's Evan E-V-A-N, Gilford Blake, G-U-I-L-F-O-R-D, hyphen B as in boy, L-A-K-E. Um, I use that in lieu of a website because my website needs to be updated <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> All of ours. A are. lot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if, if I set you to my website, you'd only be confused. So uh, if, you, if you're interested in my published work, Amazon is the best place to go. Now, Amazon, though, will not have uh, the play information in there. It's just the novels, really. Isn't that right? Well, they also have several of my plays available. Um, Nighthawks, which is my most popular play, is available in both an acting edition and a trade edition on Amazon. Um, so is my play, uh, um, uh, uh, Telling, Telling William Tell, which is a children's play that has won a couple of awards. And I think there is at least one other play that's up there uh, on, on Amazon. Okay. Uh, oh, I mean the the uh, yeah. There's there's one in a collection called Puff Puff Prose and Poetry, uh, and probably okay. one other one as well. Uh, oh yeah, poem a children's play called Plays, Poems, and Pratfalls, Will Shakespeare and Introduction, which was just published a couple of weeks ago. All right, very good, folks. We are here listening this morning to Evan Guilford Blake, playwright and novelist. You're listening to the prologue on America's Web Radio. We're going to be back after these short messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. 
His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back. You're listening to the prologue on America's Web Radio. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here this morning with playwright and author Evan Guilford Blake. Now, Evan has written many plays and four novels, which is quite a resume. Uh, one of these in particular is based on the same story. And originally the play was out, and then he wrote a novel based on that. And folks, those who are aware know those are two entirely different writing styles, a novelist versus a playwright. Evan, was the transition for you difficult in converting that work? Um, actually, no, because I've always written both, although, as I said, I focused on writing plays for about 15 years, but I had written those two early novels, which, again, are terrible, but they, nonetheless, I had grown up writing both, uh, grown up writing prose, uh, and turned to playwriting because it was a medium in which I was familiar. I spent a lot of my life in theater as an actor and uh, in other positions. So 
for me, it wasn't as hard for me as it would be for somebody who didn't have, have a background in both uh, forms. But the big difference between writing uh, a play and a novel, uh, there are two big differences. I mean, in a, um, in a play, a play lives on its dialogue. And therefore, your entire story needs to be told in what the people say, while a novel lives on its background. Um, playwrights are called frequent, are frequently said as having a um, uh, a good ear for dialogue, which a lot of prose writers don't. A lot of prose writers do, but some do not. Uh, whereas prose writers frequently uh, use a lot of narrative description that playwrights not only don't need, but aren't able to write as well. Uh, one of the big differences between a play and a novel is the length. Um, I, in my experience, and I've adapted four or five of my plays into short stories and or novels, and several of my short stories into plays, um, is that a play is usually about one-third of the length of the novel. Um, for example, uh, The Bluebird Prince, in play form, is around 14,000 words. In novel form, it's about 41,000 words. And I have another novel called Noirish, which is both a play and uh, a novel. The play is around 19,000 words. The, uh, the novel is about 52,000. So again, two and a half to three times the length of the, um, the play. Uh, that's pretty much typical. And the, the hard part is learning what to cut out when you're converting from prose to a play and what to add when you're converting from a play to a prose. I teach a workshop on that. Uh, I presented it for an organization in Indiana last year, and a couple of months ago I presented it for an organization in Arizona. Uh, it, it lasts several hours, and people seem to come away with it with a pretty good idea of how to, uh, uh, how to do that. A naive question. Um, normally it would seem that the transition would be from a novel to a play. Um, is that an incorrect assumption, or is there any documentation on that? I, I, there's no documentation on it, but that's a pretty normal assumption to make. Um, I think far more novels are adapted either into stage plays or screenplays, which is a much much different form uh, and does not relate to stage plays at all. Um, and so only like a large you, like hand... you're saying, the, di the dialogue is there in the novel. It's a matter of cutting, knowing where to cut and how to cut out all the descriptions and the scenes and things of that nature and leaving it to the, the descriptive dialogue. Is that right? Generally speaking, yes. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll find in adapting a, a novel to a play that you're going to have to add dialogue that uh, isn't in the book in order to cover those descriptive sequences. Ah, yes, yes. But, uh, that does, but I would say that probably 75% of the dialogue that's in your novel will end up in the play, whereas only 25% of your description in the novel will end up in, uh, in the, uh, the play form. So now you were doing this in reverse order, so to speak. You were taking the bare-bones narrative and turning this into a full flesh-and-blood novel. Uh, so was this... You had to rethink your own story, did you not? Um, yes, uh, but, I mean, again, 
I, particularly where Bluebird Prince is concerned, I had worked with it in so many forms uh, and so often that it wasn't all that difficult, to be frank. Um, the novel only took me about three months to write, uh, the first draft anyway. Uh, whereas the play, like I said, went, underwent uh, a dozen transitions and probably took more than 20 years to become the final document that it was. Uh, going the other way around, I have um, uh, a short story that uh, I adapted into a play, and I'm sorry, a play that I adapted to a short story where it took me, uh, oh, I don't know, probably six months to write the play, even though the short story was long finished. Um, it, you know, it very is by the piece as to how intimately you know it. Okay, okay. Now, in the Bluebird Prince, getting back into the story itself, the main protagonist in this uh, novel and play is a male, but the primary characters around him are all female. Now, is there a point this is that you're making? Yes, there is. Um, the central character is actually the Princess Fiordalisa, even though the central uh, character from the title would seem to be the prince. Um, when I wrote The Bluebird Prince, which uh, is a fairy tale, um, I wanted to present women as strong role models for the audience. The book is designed both for adults and for uh, children ages 8 to 13 primarily, particularly girls. Uh, and the things that make it unique is that the princess rescues the prince, not the other way around. Uh, prince Charming is a good guy, but he's something of a bumbler, and virtually all the principal characters besides them are women. Uh, first, Princess Fiordalisa, but the fairies and the enchanter who tells the story, um, and the court personnel and the evil queen and her clueless daughter, they're all female. Um, so are most of the ancillary characters. The other point that I really wanted to make, besides stressing how important it was to write a, a, a story that would give girls strong female characters to model themselves on, is that the entire story, no character's race is identified. Uh, I deliberately made it race non-specific, which uh, so that girls could read it and not and think of themselves as being these characters, particularly Princess Theodelisa. Um, we have in this country, as I'm sure you know, a situation where a lot of books are written where the characters are identified as being of a specific race. Um, and I think that's a bad idea. I think girls particularly need role models with whom they can identify. And a girl of any ethnicity, any background, be she Asian, be African-American, be she white, be she uh, Hispanic, can read this book and put her own face on Fiordalusa. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing to be able to, to, to do. Okay. So, yes, those, those were my points. All right. Now, is this basically a children's story? Are you directing this at a certain age group? Well, yes and no. It is a story that I trust, that I wrote for girls ages 8 to 13. But it also has a great deal in it that adults will enjoy. And in fact, in the reviews that I've received, um, the adults seem to like it as much or more than the kids do. <laughs> so, uh, um, well, yeah, the, I the would definitely say it's a, The references to uh, the characters that we've all grown up with, of course, are, are, are like Saturday morning cartoons in a way. And I, don't, I mean that in a good way. Yes, I know you do. 
Yeah, a lot of the characters, there's a lot of references in it, for example, to Shakespeare that kids aren't going to get. But adults will, and they're all comic references. Um, there are references to icons that you and I probably grew up with that kids aren't going to get, but adults will. And uh, I think that's what makes it entertaining for them, is they can relate to it on an entirely different level than kids will. There you go. So it's a children's story that the adults can enjoy. And, yeah, not unlike, I think, Harry Potter. Yeah. It's not unlike Harry Potter in that respect. Uh, one, one young man who read it, a uh, 10-year-old boy, said that it reminded him a lot of Harry Potter, which, to my way of thinking, is a great compliment, because I think the Harry Potter books are wonderful. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, from their success. Listen, we've got about a minute. What I'd like you to do, uh, the Bluebird Prince novel form, give us your elevator pitch or your book signing pitch as to why our <laughs> listeners would want to order and read The Bluebird Prince. Well, it's a book that will entertain adults and kids. Um, it is an unusual fairy tale. I call it a postmodern fairy tale. And I think that you will find that it's fun um, and a very different kind of story than you're used to getting for your kids or that they're used to reading or, for that matter, that you're used to reading. Um, adults and kids alike will have a good time with it. Outstanding. And tell them again where they can find more information about you and the Bluebird Prince. Uh, I recommend that they go to Amazon. It's Amazon. Dot com and just type in my name in the search box. It's Evan, E-V-A-N, Guilford, G-U-I-L-F-O-R-D, Blake, B-L-A-K-E. All right, very good. Folks, we want you to do that. Get on Amazon, look this up. We are here this morning with Evan Guilford Blake, and we are going to be back with more from him right after these short messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog. 
for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And good morning. We're back with Evan Guilford Blake. This has been a real lesson for folks who are interested in playwriting and also in being a novelist, we have ourselves a workshop instructor, a teacher, and a, a very experienced writer himself here is, is on the air with us this morning, and we've been learning a lot listening to Evan. Now, you've been writing for well over a quarter of a century. Is that correct? That is, that is very much correct, yes. So you've been through it. You've had a, you've had a lot. You actually went through a period that uh, you denied that you were a writer. Tell us about that. Well, when I first started writing, I dabbled. <laughs> I wrote because it was fun. It, I, I enjoyed it. But I wasn't really taking it seriously. Uh, I wasn't really pursuing it seriously. Uh, you know, writing is a hard way to, to live. Uh, being a writer is a very difficult thing, and you can't really make a living at it 99% of the time. So I needed to make a living like almost everybody else. Moreover, writing takes up a lot of time of when you could be doing a lot of other things, like falling in love and building an enduring relationship and raising a family and creating a savings account. I have to say, parenthetically here, that my wife and I got married 16 years ago. That was the first time I got married, and I was much older than most people who ever get married. But uh, fortunately, she puts up with me, which is, bless her heart, uh, <laughs> uh, the reason I can write the way I can, or the, the amount of time that I can. Um, I started writing seriously uh, in when I started committing to writing plays. Um, that was about 25 years ago, and that's what I've done pretty much ever since. Uh, and when we got married in 2000, and I moved to Georgia uh, with, uh, with my wife, to be with my wife, um, she sat me down and she said, okay, you're a good writer, your job is to write, I make enough money to support us, that's what's going to happen, I'm going to work, you're going to write. <clears throat> that's your job. And by golly, that's what I did. And from roughly 2006, anyway, or 2005, um, all I did, all I've done, really, is write and do the occasional editing uh, job. Um, so I, I spend my time writing, marketing my work, and doing the editing work, and I give myself a real honest-to-goodness writer because of that. 
Now, it's her fault. You, yes, indeed. <laughs> now, does she help you at all with any of your initial editing? Well, yes and no. I mean, she's she's my first audience. When I write something, particularly a play, we sit down on the sofa and we read it aloud, just the two of us, so I can get so, sort of a sense of what it sounds like. Um, she also reads, pardon me, all of my prose uh, and offers suggestions and comments um, that I ask. But most of the time, what I need from her are the questions she has. Um, Often I will give her something that's still in protest. She'll have no idea where I plan to take it. Sometimes I don't even know where I plan to take it. And so I say, you know, I don't need good, bad. I don't need right, wrong. What I need from you are what questions do you have about this piece? And those are, that's for me, is the most helpful thing that I can get, is have somebody sit down and tell me, honestly, I don't understand this. I need to know more about that. Um, who are these people? What's going to happen? Um, and that's usually a good way for me to, to work. So, yes, she is an integral part of my writing process. I'd like you to talk about some of your favorite works. Uh, you've got a, a great body of work in there. Tell us about some of the things that are closest to your heart. Well, I think probably my favorite work is my short story collection called American Blues. Um, it won the Creative Loafing Award for Best Book by a Local Author in 2015, and it was the runner-up for Georgia Book of the Year in the short story category. Um, that has five stories in it, uh, three of which began as plays, uh, and then I converted them to it. It's a very dark book. Um, it's not fun and friendly like The Bluebird Prince or my other novel, Animation, um, is, but it's also, uh, I think, probably the best piece of writing that I've ever done. Uh, it's available in hardbound and in paperback, uh, and it has what is probably the best paragraph I'm ever going to write in my entire life in it, in the opening story, which is called Sonny's Blues. All of the stories in it relate to blues as music and or blues as a state of mind, uh, and it's been very successful critically. It's gotten raves from uh, a number of prominent sources. Um, I also, like I said, have uh, a large body of work of plays, and my play Nighthawks, which has been produced 14 times and won three uh, awards and is available in both acting and trade editions, is probably um, my most successful play, although there are two or three others which are very dear to my heart. Uh, one's called Some Unfinished Chaos, and of course I mentioned it early on, a play called An Uncommon Language, which has won four awards including uh, Ireland's Eamon King. If I can, let's go back to your novels. American Blues is really a collection, as you said, of short stories. Your other two novels are, are somewhat different from that. You've got one that is literary fiction, and then the other is a, a really a comic mystery. Talk about those a minute. Okay, well, the literary fiction novel is called Animation. Uh, it was published about, uh, oh, I guess two years ago. And it is actually an extended version of one of the short stories that's in American Blues, which is also called Animation. Well, the story is about 10,000 words, the novel's about 102,000. Um, it concerns a 53-year-old man who's trying to start his life from scratch after being divorced and losing his job. And it's about the trials and tribulations of trying to start over. It's been described as both poignant and comic, um, and it, too, is available on Amazon uh, in both Kindle and uh, trade paper editions. 
The comic mystery is called Noirish, uh, and it's out of print right now, but uh, there's a publisher who's expressed interest, and I hope that it will be uh, back in print sometime in the spring. Say that again for us, Norish, N-O-R. Yes, N-O-I-R, parenthesis, I-S-H, N parenthesis. Okay. It's based on uh, the noir film and novel canon, um, and has all the classic noir characters in it, the loner detective, the femme fatale. If you like movies like The Big Sleep and uh, uh, the, uh, the Maltese Falcon uh, and things like that, you will enjoy noirish, but it has a twist. It also deals, it's a crossover into science fiction and fantasy, which is why it's called noir-ish. Um, and uh, uh, like I said, I hope it'll be back in print in, uh, in the spring. Very good. Now, I like you, I like the comments you made. Your wife is your first audience, and I like that. My my wife is my primary editor, and she's yeah. good at it. Um, Editing is a very important thing for all writers, and there's several elements, probably more than I'll list here, but there's content, continuity, grammar, and punctuation. Do you use beta readers before you submit a publication outside? Sometimes. Um it depends on where I think a book is. Most of my work between my wife and myself, I can get it from front to back without any serious uh, issues. In the case of The Bluebird Prince, however, because it was a children's work in particular, I definitely used beta readers, including a couple of kids, um, who could give me feedback oh, on yeah. whether they felt was appropriate for them. Um, and uh, with animation, there are, I have some close friends with whom I was in a writer's group for uh, about a year and a half, uh, all of whom were members of the Atlanta Writers Club, um, which incidentally, just to promote briefly, has some wonderful writers in it, like Valerie Connors, who was on your show last week, and George Weinstein, and Mike Brown, and John Sheffield. But these other three people... Uh, uh, Adam Feitz and Ian North and Stephanie Purdy were, are all writers whom I have a great deal of respect for, and all of them read animation, for example, before I sent it out to publishers and offered me some very useful input. So beta readers are important, I think, um, particularly once the book is complete, once you have a complete draft, so that you can get their input, find out what they think works, uh, and then make the revisions that you need to make. From your position with the experience you've had, what, in your opinion, would be the biggest mistake self-published writers make? They don't edit and proofread carefully. Most self-published books I have read are have grammatical errors left and right. There are words missing. The formatting is terrible. I would say that of all the self-published books I've read, and there haven't been that many, maybe 25 or 30, um, all but one were, in my opinion, not ready to be published. They, they had not been carefully proofread. Um, they had not been at all carefully edited. Um, and, you know, as you said, editing and proofreading are critical parts of the, the process. I don't want to submit a book to a publisher that has typos in it. I mean, my goodness, um, I'm a professional, and I want to impress them that I'm a professional. And I think a lot of self-published writers don't take that seriously, and they need to. They really do need to, especially if they're going to uh, a major house or trying to find an agent. Excellent. Now, your process, uh, music, I understand, is very important to you in your writing. Real briefly, tell us about that. 
Well, music, I listen to music a lot, and it influences my work uh, considerably. I, um, As I said, uh, American blues is all rooted in the music called blues, and I listened to lots of that when I was writing it. Uh, so I have you, a have, play you called... have that in the background that's playing while you're writing? Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, I have a play called The Enigma Variations, which is based on the Elgar Suite, and when I was writing that play, uh, I definitely listen to the music uh, the whole time. There's one portion of it that I have listened to literally a thousand times in order to write the segment in the play that uses it. Okay. What is Evan Guilford Blake working on right now? Real quick. Well, I've got three things going. I just started a new play. I have a, a novel in progress, which is a haibun novel. Uh, it's a Japanese form that mixes fact, fiction, and haiku to create a sort of memoir. And then I'm working on a new story, which will be part of my up my collection called uh, Love and Lost Love, that uh, I hope to have published sometime next year. Outstanding. Listen, we're running up against the clock here. Again, the new book out is The Bluebird Prince. The author is Evan Guilford Blake. Evan, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Can you think of anything that we've left out that just has to be mentioned before we close? Um, not that I can think of. I, I, again, I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful to your listeners. Uh, and I hope they'll stop by Amazon and look at my work uh, and find something that's interesting. And I hope they'll read a lot of work by authors who they haven't heard of, because that's how authors get heard of. Um, there are some wonderful local writers in the Atlanta Writers Club, for example, and I hope they'll check out their works as well as my own. Absolutely. Folks, thanks to Evan Guilford Blake. That's it for this hour. It has been a real pleasure, sir. We appreciate you coming on this morning. I want to uh, say for myself, Doug Dahlgren, and again for my guest, be good to yourselves and each other. I want you to read a book. If it's not one of Evan's, maybe you'll choose one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.